the goals, ambitions and hopefully achievements of two events that appear absolutely incompatible are coming up. One's in my hometown of Shepparton, another is in Melbourne. The founding philosophies of those two groups are just so different that I just cannot see how they would ever get together. They just clash in practically every way I can imagine. The first is being staged by Environmental Leadership Australia and the member for Nichols, Sam Birrell. The other is being staged by Degrowth Network Australia. The Shepparton meeting is about sustaining growth and profitability during climate change. The Melbourne meeting is about degrowth, obviously, and they appear to me anyway to clash head-on. The values and drivers of the two groups are diametrically opposed. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is put together here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. You'll find the link to the Shepparton meeting story in the show notes. That story is headlined, Birrell Business Summit to discuss climate change chances. Along with that, you'll find a link to the website, Environmental Leadership Australia. And now from Yale Climate Connections, we hear Mythbuster. Why two degrees of global warming is worse than it sounds. Daisy Simmons has written a story. And Daisy's story begins. A couple of degrees Celsius might not sound like a lot, but in terms of global warming, it's a big deal. In fact, every tenth of a degree that the Earth warms in the future will make a difference in the impacts that people experience worldwide and in your neck of the woods. Now from The Guardian, we have a story written by Nina Lakani. The story is headlined, America's hottest city is nearly unlivable in summer. Can cooling technologies save it? The story by Nina Lakani, a climate justice reporter, begins. A surge in heat-related deaths amidst record-breaking summer temperatures offers a glimpse into the future and a stark warning that one of America's largest cities is already unlivable for some, according to its new heat czar. Almost 200 people died from extreme heat in Phoenix in 2020, the hottest, driest and deadliest summer on record, with 53 days topping... 110 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 43 degrees Celsius, compared to the previous high of 33 days. Last year, there were fewer scorching days, but the death toll remained staggeringly high, with people experiencing homelessness and addictions, dying disproportionately. Next, we have the host of the ABC Television's Insiders program, David Spears, interviewing Greens leader Adam Bant. Now, I was going to select just a few highlights from the interview, but I've decided to publish the entire interview, and you can actually watch it if you like by accessing the link in the show notes. Here now is that interview. Let's turn to climate change. The government says its plan changes to the safeguards mechanism will uh, take some 200 million uh, tonnes of carbon emissions out of the atmosphere. Would you seriously vote against that? 
Well, let's look at that. Right. Coal and gas are the main causes of the climate crisis. Um, any effective climate policy should bring down pollution from coal and gas. Labor's policy doesn't do that. In fact, it gets worse. Right? So it doesn't, it doesn't reduce emissions at all? No. It, look at what happens with coal and gas. Labor's own documents say pollution from gas is going to keep going up. Why? Because that 200 million tonnes that they're talking about, A, it could all just be on paper, because coal and gas pollution gets to keep going up as long as they buy tree planting permits on the other side of the country. And that's why it makes the problem worse. But B, what the safeguard mechanism does, as proposed by Labor, is allow unlimited new coal and gas mines to come into the system. Now, those coal and gas mines that are on the books at the moment are so big it will wipe out any gains that are made from there. So like, they talk about maybe 200 million tonnes, that might all be on paper, maybe 200 million tonnes. Open up the Northern Territory gas fields, which Labor is talking about at the moment, and you are talking about 34 billion tonnes of pollution, new pollution going into the atmosphere. That's our concern. And that's why we've said, to come to your mm -hmm. question, we've put an offer, not an ultimatum. It's an offer that says, We'll put aside our very real concerns with the Ponzi scheme elements of this, um, of this plan where everything gets offset. We'll put aside the fact that we think you've got a low target that is going to mean the end of the Great Barrier Reef and that you're reheating Tony Abbott's safeguard mechanism. We will vote for it in full tomorrow if you do one thing. Stop making the problem worse. Stop opening new coal and gas projects because you can't put the fire out right, with well, petrol on it. Has any other country banned new coal and gas projects? Well, this is, the, this is what the U International Energy Agency... Yeah, I know that. ..the United Nations Secretary-General, mm. um, the world scientists... Has anyone done it? They're all saying, this is what we've got to do. At the last Has global, anyone done it? Was well, the, at the last, But at the last Global Climate Summit, the, uh, the UK, who was hosting that, they went along and they said, this has to be the summit that we start to talk about mm. not opening any... Sorry, my question anymore. was, has any country done this? Well, I know some countries have certainly um, looked, looked at it. I don't know that there's anyone taking the step yet, but Australia, Sorry, as you... the third largest exporter of fossil fuel pollution, has a special responsibility, right? We can't ask other countries to do what we're not prepared to do ourselves. Well, the arguably, that makes biggest, it harder economically the, for Australia. The, the question was, thing, so coming back to the question... Um, it, has any other country done this? You're not sure whether anyone's done it. Well, someone's got to do it. Like, someone's got to go first. Our Pacific Island neighbours are pleading with us to stop opening new coal and gas projects, right? There will have to come a time, David, mm. in human history, if we're to tackle the climate crisis, where we say we're not going to open anymore, right? Now, what would it cost? Time, have you done scientists... any, do you know any work, any work done on what that would cost Australia? Yeah, we've, we, we ran to the election with a costed platform that said, um, looking at the royalties that would be coming into the federal government from the coal and gas projects, bearing in mind that we're not talking about existing ones, we're talking about new ones. Um, look at the damage that's going to be caused from the floods and the fires and the droughts if the climate crisis gets worse and how much is being spent by communities at the moment just dealing with all of that. It's the only way and just remind to the cost, save the our economy at the moment. And what was that cost? Well, we're talking about, in terms of foregone royalty, you're talking um, from memory somewhere in the order of hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars, because bear in mind that you know, these big gas corporations, 27 big gas corporations, brought in $77 billion of income in one year 
and paid no tax on it, mm. right? The ATO has called these big gas corporations serial tax avoiders. That's why the hit to the economy is nowhere near as much as these corporations are making out. But the benefit, like it's costing farmers on average $30,000 a year at the moment. That's the climate crisis. Okay, let me so just come back it's to... It's a net benefit to the economy. The decision you've got to make here, you, you mentioned again here that this is an offer you're making, not uh, an ultimatum. Yes. So is that a, a suggestion really, or, or is, it, is it a red line? Um, coming back again to this question, would you really vote against this, this plan? Well, it's a proposal to Labor to say we'll pass your scheme in full. If you, Labor, think it's so important to keep opening new coal and gas projects in a climate crisis... If they crisis, say no, and they're saying no... Well, I don't think that position is ultimately tenable, and I don't think the government, the penny has quite dropped with the government how much things have moved on. 66% of people between 18 and 34 back our position don't want new coal and gas mines open. 57% of the general population, right? Things have moved on. I know Labor talks a lot about history, but the students who are marching in the streets at the moment behind banners saying no new coal and gas were in primary school in 2009, well, right? Yeah. They, and, they do not want... No-one can understand why... Um, uh, with the, we're coming up to the year anniversary of the floods in Lismore. People cannot understand why Labor says that they want to open up new projects. And clearly you campaigned very strongly on, on this. Um, so with this negotiation, if you don't get something from the government, if you don't walk away from this with some movement from the government on new coal and, and gas projects, are you worried some, some of those who voted Greens will wonder what's the point of the party? Oh, look... A, we're obviously a fair way away from seeing what happens here. We've put a position and it's now up to, the, to Labor... The point is you've got to, to get, you've got to get something, though, Well, B, I think people can see that we're the only ones in Parliament at the moment fighting to stop coal and gas mines being opened. And if you don't and get something for that fight, again, what's the point of the Greens? Well, right? again, well, no, what, what, why does Labor want to go to the wall to open new coal and gas projects? Like, these are huge climate bombs. Um, they've got... A very, uh, I think it's an untenable task. I'm just talking about the Greens, though. For your party, this is a high-stakes moment, right? And for your leadership. People know that we are fighting our hardest to stop Labor opening new coal and gas mines. There's 118 in the pipeline. Labor's own papers say they want to open at least six of these or seven of these new massive uh, gas fields under the safeguard mechanism. Mm. People know that we are in there fighting. That's what they expect us to do. And uh, let's remember the last election. Labor's vote went backwards. Right? The Coalition's vote went backwards. The Greens and the, the Independents, whose vote went up, said mm. it's time to stop opening new coal and gas. That penny has to drop with the government at some point. Let me just ask you a couple of compromise options here, um, and we'll try not to get too uh, technical on, on the changes here to the safeguards mechanism. Um, the Climate Council is saying, what about pausing uh, new coal and gas until the EPBC Act, the um, you know, Environmental Approvals Act, is toughened? Would, would you support that? I think that's a proposal that's worth having a look at. I mean, we, we've already compromised a lot and we've said um, we'll compromise on targets, we will compromise on how quickly we're going to make the change, we'll compromise on the offsets. There's one thing we're asking for, don't make the problem worse. Some others have put proposals Well, like I'm just going to run a couple of others past you. The Australia Institute, uh, it's also put forward an idea. You've got concerns about um, the offsets and so do, so do many people. Um, what if companies could inst still put their money into an offset or put it into a dedicated fund for decarbonisation that the government would control? So you know the money's... Um, well, you have some great assurity that the money's going to be well spent. 
Look, we're up for good faith discussions and proposals like that that are coming from people like the Climate Council, um, from the Australia Institute. I've um, seen the Australian Conservation Foundation out this week saying there's serious design problems with the government's proposal. What about putting a climate trigger in our environment laws, for example? All of those things are things that we would look at, right? Okay. And you've seen in the past, like we, we didn't support the government's climate targets, but we managed to land a place and pass the climate bill. Um, electric vehicle legislation, the energy legislation last year that reserves gas domestically, we had concerns about that, but we passed it. And just We're finally, prepared to have okay, those, it sounds, it sounds, like, it sounds like you're open for some compromise here and get, getting something from the government. Is there a prospect to, just finally, of, of cross-trading? Um, you're, you're also battling the government on the National Reconstruction Fund and the Social Housing Fund. Could you see a, a scenario where they give you a bit more on something else to get you over the line on this? Well, two things. One, one is that one of the things that ties some of those um, policies together is that Labor's policies are making things worse at the moment. They stand to make the problems worse and we're trying to stop that. But secondly, look, it has to deal with this question of coal and gas, right? It has to deal with this question of new coal and gas mines. There's no justification for opening them up in a climate crisis. You can't put the fire out while you're, trying to, while you're pouring petrol on it. First step in fixing a problem is stop making it worse. We're up for the good faith discussions. The onus is now on Labor to explain why it wants more coal and gas in a climate crisis. Adam Baird, thanks for joining us thanks, this morning. Thanks, David. And next we have a story from Degrowth, a story that is in direct opposition to a meeting that's happening in Shepparton this week. The story is Degrowth Network Australia. As degrowth becomes a more familiar term worldwide, a loose informal network of Australian degrowth activists, scholars and advocates has emerged into the formal Degrowth Network Australia, DNA. The network has a public launch workshop at 2pm to 4pm on Sunday, February 26 this year, a National Sustainable Living Festival event at the Black Bar Cultural Centre in Northcote and in the suburb of Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Calls for this network have mounted among activists keen to get degrowth explicitly on the agenda within environmental campaigns, trade unions and political parties, such as the Australian Greens. Nearby New Zealand, their allies in the non-aligned degrowth Aratoa New Zealand, DANZ, and the degrowth Greens network of the Green Party of Aratoa in New Zealand. Many Australian and other Oceanic and Pacific First Nation communities steadfastly hold to the cultures of everyday practices that nurture earth and care for people, making them implicitly degrowth in their approaches and values. Next we have a story from the New York Times. The story is by Manuela Andrioni. And the headline for the story is, Al Gore calls the World Bank chief a climate denier. Manuela's story begins, President Biden should work for the removal of the head of the World Bank, Former Vice President El Gore said on Tuesday, calling him a climate denier at an event coinciding with the United Nations General Assembly. Hours later, David Malpass, the Development Bank's president, defended his record on climate, but refused to say directly whether he accepted the scientific consensus that the burning of fossil fuels is dangerously warming the planet. Mr. Malpass called El Gore's remarks very odd and noted that he was not a scientist himself when he declined to answer questions about whether he accepted climate science. What we need to do is move forward with impactful projects, Mr Melpass said. 
Both men were part of a separate panel discussions at a climate change event organised by the New York Times. Now we have a story from Climate Home News that seems to take the story about what's happening to World Bank President David Melpass a step further. The story is headlined, World Bank Chief to Step Down Early After Climate Controversy. It begins, World Bank President David Melpass will step down from his post in June, nearly a year before his term is due to expire. Melpass received strong criticism over the bank's commitment to climate action and over his personal views on climate change. He had been under increasing pressure since last September when he refused to publicly accept that burning fossil fuels is warming the planet. Mel Pass was asked during an event on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly whether he agreed with the scientific consensus on climate change. The World Bank chief repeatedly dodged the question to heckling from the audience before he eventually responded, I'm not a scientist. Join me now as we engage with the story from Salon and a story written by Troy Farah has the headline Climate change may have encouraged the Huns to invade Europe. The fall of the Roman Empire roughly 1,500 years ago has attracted uncountable theories of what caused it. A predominant hypothesis is that roving bands of invaders overwhelmed Roman settlements across Europe and Central Asia, spreading violence and destruction wherever they went. These pressures were too great for the empire to withstand and so it collapsed. A nomadic, pastoral people known as the Huns are particularly implicated in usurping this superpower. Their fierce cavalries struck fear into the hearts of anyone unfortunate enough to cross their path. However, the motives of the Huns is still somewhat of a mystery. Most historic accounts depict these people as barbaric and ruthless, with an insatiable lust for blood and gold. But most of these descriptions don't come from first-hand accounts, more often Roman elites, and attempts to paint the Huns as subhuman may have been politically motivated. A new paper in the Journal of Roman Archaeology suggests that climate change may have been a driving factor for these raids between the 430s and the 450s AD. Specifically, a few decades of drought pushed the Huns to the brink, forcing them to brutalise others in pursuit of survival. They weren't necessarily greedy or violent, though they may have been that too, but they were mostly just starving. And finally, we have a story from the Melbourne Age. The headline for that story is, King Coal is Back. Miners post record profits on bumper demand. The story begins. Mining giant Glencore and Australian coal heavyweight Whitehaven have posted record earnings as Europe's energy crisis boosted sales of the highly polluting fossil fuel at inflated prices. Prices for high-quality thermal coal used to generate electricity are at near record highs as a major supply crunch continues to play out in the global markets, allowing Whitehaven to charge $552 a tonne compared to $202 a tonne in the first half of last year. However, the New South Wales government's announcement on Thursday of final directions under its coal reservation scheme dented investors' enthusiasm for the sector locally. With Whitehaven shares slipping 2.7% to $7.96, and the end coal shares slumping 2.3% to 5.64 on the news. Links to all the stories mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. And until we talk again, 
Please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with your friends, as we all need to know all we possibly can about living with and countering the climate crisis. So until we talk again, I urge you all to take care.